0: Hey everybody, you're listening to season 13, episode 51 of the GNU World Order. My name's 2. Episode 51 is significant because it's uh, the penultimate episode of the year. After this, we go to 52, and there are 52 weeks of the year, and therefore the show is, I guess, over. It doesn't seem like that's correct to me, but I honestly believe that it is. I have reason to believe um, that it is, no matter what calendar you use. So... In this episode, I'm going to really quickly talk a little bit about a, a, not a reader email, not a listener email, reader, listener, listener email, but a, a thing that relates to a thing that we've been talking about, and then we're going to jump right in, back into the A package set. Now, you'll remember, of course, that the previous, I don't know, like, it seems like 50 episodes have been about util Linux, and util Util Linux. Util Linux uh, is a was was just in the U. It was snuck into the U section of the A package set on Slackware, and it, when I started down that path, it just took forever because there were so many little utilities, appropriately in the package called util linux but we're, we're we're out now we've gotten through all of the package all, all the software all the commands in util linux and now we're back out into the a package set so the only ones we have left are witch xfsprogs xz and zoo that's four applications so i am feeling pretty good about getting through the a package set by the end of 2019 i'm calling it i'm saying that's going to happen that's pretty exciting, because that means that we're going to start 2020 with um, AP, which is just the general application package set. And that's kind of exciting, because, I mean, obviously, we've been in this one package set since beginning this tour of, of Slackware Linux. O- honestly, it almost feel like, feels like it's all just downhill from here. It's like, oh, we, we got out of the A package set? I mean, what else is there to cover? I have a feeling I won't be feeling that way. Uh, I don't know two weeks into the new year, but right now it just feels um like like really we've just gotten through so much, and we have i mean we really have so let's 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 turn our attention to this email that coincidentally just came into my inbox um earlier this week actually but it's it's from zoe at the at the free Software Foundation who actually I met I had the pleasure of meeting Zoe in person at a uh f s f meetup in Raleigh, North Carolina, earlier this year, and it was a really, really good meetup. My voice was shot, so I was kind of rasping my way through conversations, but a it, it, bunch of great conversations were had there, met a bunch of cool people who are, are clearly very forward-thinking and uh, have a lot of exciting plans for the FSF. So it, it is it is with almost renewed vigor about the Free Software Foundation itself not that it ever really waned, but I just, I really feel a level of confidence in the in the people that I met and the ideas that they were talking about, and, and I'm kind of excited about it. And one of the things this email, I mean, I've been excited about it, but one of the emails that came in that I want to refer to right now just happens to be very relevant to what we were talking about. Remember we've been talking about, in response to Michael's listener email, Mobile. What What do you do about mobile? About free, free and open source in in your mobile um, device? And I didn't have a good. I didn't have a great answer, and I still don't have a great answer, honestly. But you know, part of not having a great answer, ideally in the open source world, is to have something that's in progress, to have that solution available. And that solution, as you probably kind of know, could be replicant. So if you go to replicant.us you'll find the website of this this initiative that has been launched i guess it's more than an initiative it's a project that has been launched to take android source code and sort of develop essentially a a libre android distribution for for better for for lack of a of a more graceful term but that's what it is i mean it's it's the free version free and open source version of of the android OS. Now they're they're rebasing replicant off of Android 9, which uh, should enable a, a wider range of users to use a fully free Android distribution for the first time. So that's a big deal. They are um, seeking to reduce costs of 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 maintenance and just trying to kind of stabilize the project and make sure that it's that it's into to, to last and and to go forward, regardless of anything else. Like, Replicant should be its own project, right? I mean, we don't know what's going to happen to Android. Android's developing. We don't know what's happening to it. We don't know what direction it's going because it's not fully open. Replicant will be fully open. Ideally, we'll have some level of confidence in, in its uh, sustainability. And ideally, it will be something that lots of people can use. And I think, as I've said in the previous episodes, I mean, that's kind of one of the big hurdles to the mobile platform, is that the software and the hardware are really, really tightly sort of interwoven, and it's not super easy to just grab any phone. I mean you can't. You cannot go to the store and just grab any phone and bring it home and think, "Okay, well now I'll flash some, you know, free and open source software onto it." Because you just don't have that level of of confidence that that there will be a boot ROM for that device. And that's a problem. That's one of the central problems I think for me of the mobile mo- mobile platform. I just I don't I don't feel like I have control over the platform. And when I don't feel like I have control over a, a thing that I've that I'm purchasing, Oftentimes, for over a hundred dollars, then I, I I have very little interest in it. So replicant is a big deal. It's an important little initiative, at least insofar as we are assuming that mobile, the mobile platform, is kind of the future, or at least part of the future. And I think it's it's more or less relatively safe to assume that. I mean, it's funny because you you know we're sitting around thinking, oh, it's it's mobile from now on. Like, that's that's where everything's going. And yet, I mean, would you have ever said that the iPod itself would have gone away? Like, it, would you have said that would ever go away back in, um, you know, 2000 and something? 2003, 4, 5, whatever? I mean, at that time, there was nothing more coveted than an iPod. And I don't think anyone would have ever seen the day that nobody even has, you know at that point everyone had a media player and that was going to be the future that was the future everyone was going to have a media player and then suddenly the mobile platform became a platform in itself and and media players were redundant within within 10 years of of being developed practically they they were they were mute they were uh, uh, moot, not mute. <laughs> well, they were moot and mute. Point is, Replicant's an important project if we're assuming that the mobile platform is part of the future, and they're asking for donations right now. So if you go to Replicant.us, you should donate some money for the holidays. If you have nothing better to do with that money, donate it to Replicant. Or alternately, if you, like me, would rather see don- uh, like gifts be just donations to worthy causes... Then, then make that happen and and consider Replicant as one of those those targets for your donation. Okay, so um, let's see. Yeah, and if, you know, if I haven't mentioned that lately, someone did mention that to me on Mastodon, um, I want to just reiterate, and I should probably put this on the website. I don't know how many people actually go to gnuworldorder.info, but if you ever want to support this show in any way, by all means give money to the Slackware project. And Slackware has a Patreon page, which I, I'm pretty sure I have mentioned that before, but they do have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash slackwarelinux. That's slackwarelinux, all one string. patreon.com slash slackwarelinux. Donate to that project, and I will I will view that in my heart as a donation to this show. Okay, let's start out with the first command of, of our little short list here and that would be the which command w h i c h oddly enough we were just not talking about which uh, a couple episodes ago remember in the util linux package there's the there was the where is command and the purpose of the where is command if, if you'll recall was to find a an executable binary and a man page for a, an, a the application that you name and then I I think I I I'm pretty sure I even said during that episode why would someone use this over which and the I guess the more or less obvious answer is well you get you get the binary executable and the man page and then my immediate thought was well why not use which and apropos however where is gives you both so why wouldn't you just use where is and and honestly the 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 actual reason at least for me is that which is five letters and where is is seven letters. Guess what, guess which one wins? It's which. Um, also there's just habit, honestly. It, the habit forces me to use which. Um, I, I may at some point try to switch over to where is, but let's talk about which because that is obviously the one that we're talking about here. So um, which, it, it takes one or more argument for each argument it prints to standard out the full path of the executables that would, that would have been executed when this argument had been entered at the shell prompt. So in other words, you type in a command after the word which, and it tells you where it found that command by searching through your path. Of course, your path variable is uh, viewable to you by echo and then space dollar sign P-A-T-H, all capitals, and that shows you the, the path. And, you know, this is like one of those sort of introductory exercises that people should have to do or, or you know, that's, that one should force one's self to do frequently when first starting out with Linux because it's just so difficult to understand how those commands actually occur. And you can tell people, well, a command happens. The, the computer knows what to do when you type in a command because it is searching through your path and finding the, the, the first occurrence of of the thing that you just typed. But it doesn't really make sense until someone sits down with which and and types out a couple of things and figures out, okay, now I'm getting it. So when I do which find, it tells me that, that, that the find command is in slash user slash bin slash find. Got it. So if I type in slash, or which awk, it tells me it's in user bin awk. Which install pkg, not found in my path. Why wouldn't it be found in my path? Well, that's because it's not in my normal user path. I have to become root in order for install pkg to be found. And there it is, slash sbin, slash install pkg, and so on. That kind of uh, repetition, I think, really does reinforce some of the the principles. It doesn't explain the principle necessarily, but it reinforces it. It just kind of drums into your head. If a command is not in your path, then it's not going to be found no matter what you do. And if you have two commands of the same name, then when you type in which and then that command, it it returns the one that it has found first according to the order that your path is is written in. Now there is a way around that, and that's why I jumped to that example, which-all. Uh, prints all matching executables in your path not just the first so that would be a good way to find um, I guess what what I would think of as a collision but I guess it's technically not a collision um, but it's kind of a collision I'm I don't believe that I have such a, an example unfortunately to drum up I just tried python because I was thinking well maybe python might qualify because there's that python 2 and python three but it is yeah it's just python so anyway, um, dash dash all shows all matching executables in the path, not just the first one. There's a couple of similar options in, in which, such as the uh, show show tilde or show dot, or uh, skip dot and skip tilde. So the skip dot or show dot either skips or shows directories in your path that start with a dot. The skip or show tilde will uh, skip tilde? Tilda. Um, it, it will skip dev- uh, directories or or show directories that start with a tilde. So that controls sort of, or, or that rather lifts certain items out of your path if for whatever reason you, you want to do that. And you might want to because the dot might, obviously it would probably indicate some kind of uh, path some kind of absolute path from from your current directory or maybe even your current directory. I think a lot of people or some people may may actually have that in their path, and then I don't, but some people do. Uh, and then tilde obviously would be the stuff that you've got hanging out in your own home directory, and and maybe maybe you're not looking to see if you personally have something installed. You want to see if the system itself has something installed. So there's um, an interesting little example in the man page for which that kind of tells me that maybe they don't actually mean it to be used the way that I feel I was taught to use it. It's a really interesting example, and I'm just going to I'll sort of give you the overview here. No, actually, I'll just give you the example. It's not that much. The recommended way to use this utility is by adding an alias in the C shell or shell function in born shell for which, such as the following, and here's the bash example, which, uh, curly brace, Parentheses alias semicolon declare dash f close parentheses pipe user bin which dash uh, rather dash dash tty only which is an option to uh, stop processing options on the right if not tty and then dash dash read alias which is an option to detect get exactly what it says it says read alias read aliases from standard in reporting matching ones on standard out. Okay, uh, dash dash read functions, which is a option to read shell function definitions from standard in, reporting matching ones on standard out. Dash dash show tilde sh- dash dash show dot, and then dollar sign at sign. Close the uh, brace, and then export dash f which. So it's sort of, yeah, it's, I mean it's creating basically an alias for which. So presumably you would have this, I guess... Maybe in your .bashrc, or maybe maybe I don't know. Maybe it's in something else. Maybe it's a dedicated program. I don't know. But there's there's the which, and then uh, it says this will print the readable tilde slash and dot slash when starting which from your prompt, while still printing the full path when used from a script. So in their example, they have which q2, and then it shows oh tilde slash bin slash q2, and then echo backtick which q2, backtick slash home slash example slash bin slash q2. So I don't know exactly why they're recommending the the use case that specifically in their example, and why they wouldn't have built their command to actually work that way. It, It strikes me as odd, in other words, that the command would be written in such a way that in its man page it provides you with code to result in what in how the command ought to be run <laughs> or or in 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 the way that the the author presumably thinks that the command should output information to you and I, I do have to wonder if that is if that is some some sort of artifact of okay well there was this which command and people people expected expect it from from habit to output a certain thing but we actually think that it should be better and it should output things this way. So here's the command that you're used to from, you know, I don't know, U- Unix, you know, BSD 4 or BSD 3 or something, uh, or Unix System 5 version 2. But here's how we actually think it should work. And just as a reference, just to kind of double check everything, I have this. Um, I have this Unix system command summary booklet that I got at a used bookstore, and it is from 1987, I believe. 1984, sorry. It's from 1984. And because I, I just kind of wanted to to find out, like, okay, well, is is which a very old command or is it a newer command? Like, where does this fall in the line of traditional Unix? So at least as of 1984, which was was available, and uh, it says which, find c- program files including aliases, it says it was available for the C shell only, uh, and then the, the syntax for it was uh, which, and then the names of the programs or aliases that you want to find. Now interestingly, in addition to which, right above it is listed the Where is command, which as you and I both know, comes to us now from util linux so that kind of tells me that it's not it, it wasn't developed by util linux it's just you know this is util linux's version of the where is command or that other command was anyway uh, and the the options look fairly similar so it says find sources binary or man, uh, man manual for a file and the the syntax is where is and then some options and then some files and you can do a dash b to find only binaries. You can look. You, you can do a dash m just for the man pages and dash, a dash s for just the source code and so on. So so as it turns out, both where is and which are that they date back at least to 1984, which I, I thought was kind of interesting. So anyway, let's move on. A better idea. Let's go get a cup of coffee. Then let's move on. <laughs> I do. I'm assuming that you do, too, or else you wouldn't have pressed play. It's an honor system where I tell you to go get coffee. I trust that you've gone to get coffee. The next one in our list is XFS Progs, I think. I'll just actually verify that. Which, and then XFS Progs, yeah. So XFS Progs is the set of tools designed to work with the XFS file system. And just really quickly, I'm going to maybe look up XFS file system. For some, just a, a really kind of quick overview of its history, and according to Wikipedia, anyway, it is a high-performance 64-bit journaling file system, originally created by Silicon Graphics, that's SGI to us normal folk, uh, back in 1993, and it was the default file system for the IRIX operating system. Now, I've never actually used IRIX. I've heard about it. Um, I know people who have. You know, they've 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 used it. They have feelings about it. Um, I've never used it. I was in an industry that, where lots of people were on were on that file on that OS, and so I guess by extension they were also on XFS. And you know you'll you'll hear people talk about what's what's good for this and what's good for that, and and it's I I, I have a hard time talking about file systems in absolutes because I just don't feel like that many people actually look at studies of file system performance and then even when some people do I always wonder about you know when when we're talking about failures are we talking about file system failures or are we talking about hard drive failures and those are sometimes difficult to tell the difference between if you're not actually you know really careful in your studies so XFS I've I've used a little bit by default and the only way that I've used it really is when it become when it comes as the default and it's definitely the default on Red Hat. I'm pretty sure it's the default on CentOS and I believe it was the default for a while on Fedora and it may even still be. I just haven't actually bothered looking lately. But it's a pretty it's a pretty well supported file system and I'm certainly not opposed to using it in real life. I haven't done a whole lot with it. And I probably should. I really should. I should I should turn my attention to XfS and really kind of dig into it and find out how I feel about it. I, I certainly feel fine about it, but I, I maybe I'm a fan of it. Who knows? I need to kind of do some real life, not tests so much as just, hey, let's use the thing and see if it if it if it performs well. It's got a couple of different features like variable block sizes and extended attributes. Extended attributes is good. It is journaled, and that is very good. Now, if you know about me and my file system um, preferences, I certainly prefer the journaled file system. I get very nervous when I encounter a file system that is not journaled, and I become pretty suspect of it. But worse than, I guess, not being journaled is not having a a file system check routine that can be run against a file system, and there are those that do not. So the fact that XFS does have that is is quite comforting on its own. So there are three commands in the XFS progs package. There's fsck.xfs, there's mkfs.xfs, and then there's xfs underscore repair. Somewhat amusingly, fsck.xfs does literally nothing. Uh, If you do a man fsck.xfs, it says, Do nothing. Successfully says that fsck.xfs is called by the generic Linux fsck program at startup to check and repair an XFS uh, file system. XFS is a journaling file system and performs recovery at mount time if necessary. So fsck.xfs simply exits with a zero exit status, so that means it's successful. If you wish to check the consistency of an XFS file system or repair a damaged or corrupt XFS file system, CXFS underscore repair. And that's all FSCK.xfs does is literally nothing. Alright, so let's look next at the um, at the XFS XFS repair, which I think was XFS underscore repair. That says repair an XFS file system. XFS underscore repair repairs corrupt or damaged XFS file systems. File system is specified using the device argument which should have which should be the device name of the disk partition or volume containing the file system so if it's partitioned then you want to give the partition if you know for a fact that you didn't partition the drive and it is just on the drive then just give it the the path to the drive if given the name of a block device xfs repair attempts to find the raw device associated with the specified block device and uses that instead which is kind of a nice feature actually so um there are a couple of different Command, um, options, rather, there's dash F to specify that the file system image to be processed is stored in a regular file rather than on a device. So if you, for instance, had to make a copy, like a, a DD or something, of a, of a hard drive because you're f- afraid that it's failing or something like that, you've you've just made a, a virtual image of that of that hard drive or a, a file containing a file system, then you can use dash f for makefs.xfs to know to look at that file and that is not looking for a device. Now some of the options concern different aspects of the xfS file system based on the fact that the uh, XfS file system is consi- um, is composed of three different parts. So there's the data section, there's the log section and then there's what's called the real-time section. The data section contains all of the metadata about the file system, so it's got like the inodes, the directory indicators, the indirect blocks, as well as the user file data for ordinary non-real-time files, and the log area if the log area is not separated out into its own section. The log section... Uh, if it's not internal to the data section, is used to store changes to file system metadata while the file system is running. This is written sequentially during a normal operation, and it's read during a mount operation. When mounting an XFS file system after a crash, the log is read to complete operations that were in progress at the time of the crash. And then there's the real-time section which stores the data of real-time f- files. Real-time files, according to XFS.org itself, was originally designed for media streaming requiring predictable latencies. So the the term real-time is is what you think it is, like real-time meaning like real-time data. Now the reason I'm mentioning all of that is because in the XFS underscore repair man page, which I've navigated away from now, here we go, uh, there are a bunch of options for that sort of thing. So there's, for instance, uh, dash L to indicate where the log of the XFS file system is located, because you can't depend, depend necessarily, I mean, depending on your setup. But in some cases, for instance, your, your log data would not be in your data section. It, it it may be somewhere else. And you've got a dash R to indicate where your real-time section resides. And I'm assuming somewhere in here you have a dash delta, but you don't. Dash D is repair dangerously. It allows um, XFS underscore, underscore repair to repair an XFS file system mounted read only. This is typically done on a root file system from single user immediately followed by a reboot. Um, I don't know where you can define the the other part of XFS. I don't see that happening here, but quite possibly that just means that if you've defined the L, the log, and the dash r for real time, then the one that's left over is the rest of the XFS file system. So that might be why there's a why there's a lack of an uh, an apparent lack of an option there. Let's see, there's dash in for no modify. So you 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 run the repair um, utility, but it only scans the file system. It doesn't actually change the bits on it. There's the dash capital P option, which disables prefetching of inode and directory blocks. Use this option if you're uh, if you find xfS underscore repair getting stuck or uh, or not proceeding um, interrupting a stuck xfS repair is safe um, that's that's pretty much it I mean there's other little little options here and there but those are those are the the ones that jump out at me there's a couple of couple of things about memory limits and a big section on what kind of change uh, what what kind of checks are performed it's an eight 8-point list, and maybe I'll kind of skim over it real quick. So there's um, inode and inode block map addressing checks. That looks for bad magic numbers in inode, bad magic number in inode block map blocks, extents out of order, incorrect number of records in inode block map blocks, and so on. There's the inode allocation map checks. There's a size check, so that's the number of blocks claimed by an inode being inconsistent with the inode size. There's the directory check, a path name check, a link count check, a free map check, and a super block check. All of that's done by the XFS underscore repair. Now again, ideally, in theory, none of this is necessary, right? Something, something goes wrong, something crashes, something goes offline, whatever. You reboot the thing, and during the mount operation, XFS corruption is flagged by the mount but by the mount process, and mkfs is run on the volume, or the the XFS file system repairs itself and and then continues. In practice, I've seen that happen. I've definitely seen that exact operation happening. Uh, It's not something that you necessarily want to see last for a very long time, you know? A quick mkfs always feels better than a long mkfs, but it does happen and i've seen it and that's just from you know like rebooting or, or rather booting up a server that's gone offline for some reason uh, red hat server specifically so yeah i've i've i know that behavior uh, but i don't know a whole lot i don't know a whole lot about it i just know that it does happen so then there's this final command here called mkfs.xfs and i think you probably, if you've ever made a file system, you're, you're familiar with the mkfs command. mkfs has a bunch of sort of sub-commands that get brought into it, so mkfs.xfs tells is, is running the, the mkfs.xfs version of that command. It makes a Linux file system, and specifically in this case it's been told, well, you're going to make an xfs file system. You can define a couple of different things with this. You can define the block size that you need. You can define a uh, specific metadata, dash M. You can define where the data is stored. Remember, data, log, and real-time can be on separate in separate places. So dash D defines the data location. Uh, dash L defines the log location. And then um, I think dash R, yep, dash R defines the real-time location. You can define everything else, sector size, inode size, a label. So if you want to give your, your hard drive a name, a human-readable name, then you can do a dash capital L to give it a label. And of course, when you issue that command, you're issuing it against either a a, a device or a partition. And I think, ideally, it's against a partition. I mean, generally speaking, Linux prefers you or, or expects you to to define a to, to yeah, define a partition on a device and then point a file system at that partition and say, okay, fill that partition up with this file system. That's just kind of the model that has been set forth. Now you can technically not do that. You could you can take like a thumb drive and just point makefs.xfs at it or makefs.jfs or whatever you want and or UFS and, and fill the entire drive from end to end with no concept of a partition with that file system and that generally works. Now, uh U- UDF, the Universal Disk Format, which uh, is an ISO specification that that you'll probably know technically as ISO-9660, whatever it is that I think DVDs use, the UDF format was 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 great. I mean, it was fantastic. I think I've talked about it on this show before. And and interestingly, it never did want to partition it I, th- I think it might i think it did accept it if you forced it onto a partition but it, it kind of complained it, it wanted to be on a device because it was developed to be fair for optical media and um because it was developed for optical media it was cross-platform everyone had a driver for udf and on one hand i think I think many operating systems do, but I think there's one that does not. If I'm remembering correctly, um, Apple just dropped UDF support for some reason. I guess because they aren't bundling, they aren't putting an optical drive in their computers anymore, so they just figure that no one would ever want to run an optical disk on their OS anymore, and so it's gone. Which is a pity, because UDF was a fantastic cross-platform file system. Wasn't journaled. I don't even think it had an, MK, uh, an FSCK um, application with it, so it is a little bit risky. But it sure was nice because it was a. It wasn't fat. It was UDF. It behaved pretty well on uh, on all three platforms, and it just had that driver just inherently. And it's open source. So yeah, that was nice, but it's kind of over. Those days are over now, and I think the show is over as well. This episode, I believe has reached the end because um, I want to save some applications for next time. I don't want to just have one application to cover uh, in the final episode. So in the final episode, I guess we'll go over XZ and Zoo. I've used one, but not the other, so that'll be kind of interesting to experiment with between now and a couple weeks from now. So hey, thanks for listening. Have a great holiday. I I assume that's coming up. I will talk to you next time. Of course, you can email me at klaatu at member.fsf.org. That's klaatu at member.fsf, as in foundationorg And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time. I